in search of utopia, I drove to utopia. It's a quiet and quick and pleasant trip. Raise your hand if you've ever been to Utopia. Yeah. Take Highway 46 out of Bernie, Highway 90 out of San Antonio, and you'll soon enter the city limits of Utopia. Population 227. That's where Rick Nicosia and I went to research this message. I conversed with half a dozen folks, each one as friendly as the Texas sky is blue. There was a couple who worked in the feed store, another who runs a convenience store. I spoke with two ladies at a restaurant, one a server, the other the owner. And all were pleased to offer a response to my question, how did Utopia get the name Utopia? The word, as you may know, was coined over 500 years ago by Thomas More, a Roman Catholic philosopher. And it designates a fictional, idyllic society located on a remote island somewhere in the Atlantic. And the word has come to symbolize a place of perfection, equality, harmony, justice, and prosperity. So that said, I can confidently state utopia is not utopian. No disrespect needed, but the town is not perfect. I just saw a street that needed repair. The hot summer sun had dried up some of the creeks. Trees bore blight. There was a dilapidated double wide trailer that implied the presence of poverty and a couple of longtime residents were bemoaning the arrival of a bunch of newcomers to their town. <laughs> so utopia is not utopia. You think we'll ever have one? We long for one. There is something within you that longs for the presence of peace, equality, safety, morality, kindness. It's interesting that you have that longing. The presence of that longing means you were made in the image of God. Dogs don't have that longing. Lizards don't have that longing. Trees don't have that longing, but we people do. And the present, we're not satisfied with the world as we see it, but we don't quite know what to do with it. But I would suggest that the very presence of that longing is proof of the divinity intended and explored by every person. So we wonder, will a government someday so effectively deal with all the issues of the world, solve the corruption, the crime, the greed? Will some day some government do it so well that utopia will live up to its name? No, no. We can put the name on a sign, but humanity will not create utopia. How can I be so sure? Well, I've got three reasons. Number one, Satan is on the prowl. You see, Satan is not just the nebulous presence of evil, but Satan is a person of evil. He is a fallen angel 
who desires nothing more than to make your life miserable. The scripture says that the devil is your enemy. And he goes around like a roaring lion looking for someone to attack and eat. So as long as Satan is on the earth, as long as he deceives, steals, and destroys, utopia has no chance. There's a second reason, and that is Jesus is unwelcome. Most parts of the world, most corners of our globe, Jesus is not welcome. He's just not welcome. He's not sought. He's not worshiped. He's not consulted. Even in our country, which we call a nation based on Judeo-Christian values, research shows that only 39% of our population says they read their Bible more than once a year. Only 39%, only 10% of our society says they read their Bible every day. So how can we call Jesus king if we never consult him? How can society revere God if they never open their Bible to get his advice? The fact of the matter is Jesus is unheard of. We don't hear him. So he's not revered. And that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is being answered in individual lives. But show me a society, a nation, a state, even a neighborhood that is saying collectively, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Jesus is unwelcome. So Satan is on the loose, Jesus is unwelcome, and one more, our rulers are unrighteous. Our rulers are unrighteous. For every good, righteous, decent person in office or in authority, there are dozens who seek nothing more than their self-interest. So how in the world can we expect to have utopia if leaders oppress the weak or embezzle funds or hide the truth? They, like we, fall short of God's standard and unrighteous rulers cannot righteously rule. So what hope do we have? Will this planet ever know a time of abundance and provision? Will, will this earth forever groan under the weight and the influence of Satan? Well, a stunning, surprising answer is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And in this text, the apostle John, who has a vision of what is going to happen, uses the phrase millennium or thousand year, thousand years, six times, six times. And he speaks to a time in which this world that is currently so upside down will be for that thousand years right side up. Satan will be trapped. He will be incarcerated. Jesus will be enthroned and he will be worshiped. We will worship him personally, globally. And we, the redeemed saints, will fulfill 
the destiny given to us in the Garden of Eden. We will reign and rule with Christ. Locato, where are you getting all this? <laughs> well, let's get our bearings. Last week we looked, you want to applaud? You can applaud. I, I love applause because that's good news. Revelation 19 is where we were last week. Revelation 19 describes the return of Christ and his retinue of angels and saints. We will descend with him in a fiery fury and we will witness Jesus decimate the last players, the main players of that tribulation, the beast, the false prophet and the wicked armies. That leaves one figure to be dealt with and that is Satan. Satan, as you well know, for centuries has been the God of this world. Satan, as you well know, has been the prince of the power of the air. Satan has wrought more havoc and death and sadness than any book could ever describe. But the descent of Jesus to earth will mark the demise of Satan. And we believers will be there to witness it. Again, we will have been raptured by Christ, delivered from the tribulation, will be glorified with Christ. That means we'll have perfect heavenly bodies that will know no disease, nor death, nor depression. While the earth recoils under seven years of trouble, we'll rejoice to be rewarded by Christ. We'll see the victory of Christ, the battle of Armageddon north of Jerusalem. We'll witness the incarceration of the devil as he is bound and locked away. And here's where John begins telling us what's going to happen. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the, look at this, bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. Now this isn't the Bible's first reference to a bottomless pit. In fact, earlier in the book of Revelation chapter nine and verse one, there's a fallen angel who is given the key to the bottomless pit and he opens it releasing demons. In this occasion, however, the exact opposite will occur. Watch this. The angel sees the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Have you ever seen a pit? Have you ever seen a deep pit? Have you ever seen a caliche pit? You ever seen an armpit? We've seen all types of pits. <laughs> it's a pleasant thought. But none of us have seen a bottomless pit. Have you? I have never seen a bottomless pit. But there is one reserved for Lucifer. Good riddance, Lucifer. After centuries of wreaking havoc, after two testaments worth of fear, battle, conflict, after thousands of years of dispensing more racism, misogyny, abuse, bloodshed, heartache, headache than any book could ever capture. Satan will be 
out of the picture. He will be thrown into a bottomless pit. For a thousand years, he will become the falling angel. Not just the fallen angel, but the falling angel, ever flailing, ever spinning out of the picture. Can you imagine our world without him? No war, no conflict, no seeds of doubt, no fear of death. Satan will be sealed away for 10 glorious centuries. Now he won't be cast into hell, not yet anyway. In fact, John carefully and kind of cryptically says afterward, he must be released for a little while. Why? Keep him locked up. Why must he be released for a little while? Well, before John gives us the answer, he goes on to describe what he saw. Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them who had been given power to judge. That's you, that's me. Having descended with Christ, thrones signify authority. He places us on thrones or he gives us the power to rule. Again, thrones are given to people who are given the power to judge. We're rescued, we're renewed, we're raptured, we're wedded and now anointed to rule Adam and Eve. We're given this power, but they abdicated it, but we're not going to abdicate it. We, the descendants of Adam and Eve, will fulfill our role in the new kingdom. We will be joined by tribulation believers. I saw the souls of those who had been killed because they were faithful to the message of Jesus and the message from God. They had not worshiped the beast or his idol. They had not received the mark of the beast on their foreheads. That's tribulation talk. These are people who in the midst of the tribulation chose to become followers of Jesus. Maybe they were influenced by the Jewish evangelists, but for whatever reason, these people declare their belief in Christ and they become a part of the resistance of the antichrist. They will, many of them become martyrs. Some of them will become survivors. The survivors will enter into the millennium in their mortal bodies. And those who are martyrs will be resurrected and they will be commissioned by Christ to reign as well. And together we will reign and rule with Christ for a thousand years. The words with Christ are important. We will reign with him on this earth. He descended to the earth. There's no scripture that says he has yet ascended into heaven. So we're still on this earth. He will assume the throne. He will fulfill those covenants made to David. That covenant that said, you and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. Second Samuel 7, 16. That's one of those covenants that's driving history right now. The angel, when Jesus was about to be born, told Mary about Jesus and said, his name will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now we can begin to tally this up. Jesus will be given the throne of his father, David. David reigned in Jerusalem. Jesus will reign in Jerusalem. We will reign with him. But over whom will we rule? 
Well, there are many people who will exit the tribulation as saved because they became followers of Jesus, but they will not be martyrs. And they will enter the world in their mortal bodies and we will govern them. And everything that causes this world to be chaotic will be reversed. Those three impediments to utopia will be reversed. Remember, Satan is on the prowl, not in the millennium. Satan will be bound. Jesus is unwelcome in our day, not in the millennium. Jesus will be enthroned. Unrighteous rulers govern currently, true. But in the millennium, righteous rulers will govern. The result, utopia. And these wonderful promises that don't make sense elsewhere begin to make sense like this one from Isaiah 11 and verse six. Then the wolves will live in peace and the lambs and the leopards will lie down to rest with goats. The world will be at peace. Bears won't attack. Sharks won't bite. And nations won't rage. Look at this. Then the Lord will mediate between the nations and settle disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Those in mortal bodies will live long lives. Isaiah also says this, no longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. The world, so upside down, in other words, will finally be right side up. Can you let your imagination move out into that new era? Those who are rejected in our day will be respected in the next. Those who were enslaved and sold in our day will rule and reign with Christ. Those who have been handicapped all of their lives or sick all of their lives will serve with perfected, glorified bodies. Millions, maybe billions of people have been victims of cruel tyrants on earth. In the next, they themselves will rule with righteousness. Many in this life have been aborted, discarded, considered unnecessary and inconvenience. In the next, they'll be rewarded by Christ. They'll be consulted. They will serve in the presence of Jesus. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? Sounds like the perfect ending. Sounds like the great conclusion to the story of God. He has his Eden. His perfect children reign with him on a perfect earth. But then there is this surprise. Do you remember that parenthetical statement from John earlier in this text? Afterward, he must be released for a little while talking about the devil. And we said, now why would you release the devil at the end of the thousand years? Well, John tells us what's going to happen next. When the thousand years end, Satan will be led out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations of the world and gather them together with Gog and Magog for a battle, a mighty host, numberless as sand along the shore. And they will go up across the broad plain of the earth and surround God's people and the beloved city of Jerusalem on every side, but fire from God in heaven will flash down on the attacking armies and consume them. 
Satan will be unchanged for a short time and he will do what he always does. He will recruit people to his side. And he will find some people, a leader by the name of Gog in a region called Magog. This region called Magog is often considered to be a region in the far north, far north of Jerusalem in modern day Russia. And he will recruit for himself people who are geographically separated from Jesus and Jerusalem, far from Jesus. People who are a thousand years separated from the tribulation. Easy targets for Satan, far from Christ, far from their story. And they will have the audacity to do what others have thought. They, have, they will have the audacity to rebel against Jesus and to attempt to destroy him, but this war will never happen. John said, fire from heaven came down upon the attacking armies and consumed them. The battle will end before it begins. And now Satan will be thrown into a lake of fire, gone forever. No more tormenting. He himself will be tormented forever. He won't be alone. There will be many people who, you want to applaud that, you can. As we'll see next week, there will be many of the willingly wicked who will be discarded into the lake of fire with him. The most somber scripture in the whole Bible. But before we begin that discussion next week, let's wrap up this discussion this week with the question, what can the millennium teach us? What can these passages suggest to us? I have two thoughts very quickly. Number one, we cannot underestimate the depravity of humanity. I mean, look at it. Not even after a thousand years of peace and prosperity will people be able to control their sinful nature. And when Satan comes, he will find willing followers. This happened in the Garden of Eden. In the best of worlds, he was able to convince Adam and Eve to disobey God. God who has always granted free will will find people who will freely serve, I'm sorry, Satan who knows we have free will will find those who are willing to follow him. You see, when we enter into our eternal state forever, no one's gonna think we did it on our own. No one's gonna boast of anything they did. Every single one of us will say, you know, we're only here because we have a redeemer someone who died for us. No one's gonna boast in what they did because we are aware of the depravity of humanity. But then also lastly, we cannot overestimate God's sovereignty. We cannot. This is what God declared from the beginning and we're seeing it happen in the end. Look again at this passage from the book of Genesis. God's plan from the very beginning, God created them human beings, making them to be like himself. He created them male and female and blessed them and said, have many children so that your descendants will live all over the earth and bring it under their control. I'm putting you in charge. Who's in charge? Well, none of us are right now. We can't get fish to bite, much less obey. <laughs> but we'll be in charge. Adam and Eve were put in charge. Again, they abdicated. They chose Satan over God, but we're not. And what God said would happen, will happen. We'll be in charge over nature. And we will rule with him for that thousand 
years. God's plan from the get-go was a paradise populated by his children. And what God says will happen, happens. Look again at this passage we've looked at before from the book of Isaiah. God says, from the beginning I told you what would happen at the end. Never been a secret. A long time ago I told you things that have not yet happened. When I plan something, it happens. What I want to do, I will do. God knows the future because he determines the future. God knows the future because he determines the future. He doesn't read palms, tarot cards, horoscopes. He doesn't have to guess. He's not a soothsayer or a predictor. He knows what's coming because he decides what's coming. And he has decided and he always performs what he plans. Now, do we not need this reminder today? In this world where everything is so shaky, so topsy-turvy, do we not need a reminder of God's steadfast hand on the steering wheel of human history? About a week ago, I heard the story of a boy by the name of Beckham that illustrates God's providence. When Beckham was a toddler, he was found wandering the streets of Burundi looking for food. He was taken to an orphanage and soon adopted by a mother in the northwestern part of the United States. Her intentions were good, but the boy was just too much for her. And after two and a half years, she called the adoption agency and said, I just can't do it. We need a new family. An alert went out known as a second chance adoption. It's an urgent appeal to prospective families around the country. It came to the attention of Megan. She and her husband already had two children, but they were praying about the possibility of a third. They expressed interest and were told that a part of the regulations would require them to travel to the Northwest and spend a week with little Beckham to see if there was compatibility. They willingly did so. They boarded a plane. They rented a beach house in Oregon. They took their other two kids and the five of them together enjoyed the most wonderful week of fun and meals and games. The night before the final day, Thomas, the father, over the meal, told everybody, today's our last day, tonight's our last night, tomorrow we all have to go home. After the meal, all the kids went to bed and Megan and Thomas could hear Beckham in his bedroom crying. It's just a kid. They go in and they ask him what's wrong. He can't find the words. They ask him again, he can't stop sobbing. They ask him a third time and finally he says, have I been good enough? And they came to learn that Beckham had been told that only if he was good enough that week would he have a new home. The father Thomas put his arms around little Beckham. He squeezed the boy and he said, listen, son, we decided we wanted you before we knew you. And nothing you could have done this week could have changed our plans. You are now in our forever family. You see, what Thomas did is what our father did. He determined 
before there was ever a beating heart on earth that he would have his children if his children would have him. Now Beckham is in his forever family. He's a beautiful young boy growing up with a fantastic future, all because a father and a mother kept their promise. Your heavenly father will keep his promise to you, my friend, he will. He will do what he has said he will do. And in these worlds in which so much is turned upside down, isn't it good to know that a day is coming in which everything will be right side up. Thank you, Lord, for these messages of hope that you bring us through your scripture. And now, Father, we pray that we can receive them in our, in our very beings. Through Christ we pray, amen. We're going to offer a prayer of salvation now. If we could have, if I could have your attention for just three more minutes, I'll be done. You'll have to apologize to our children's ministry because our preacher went so long today. Tell them not to be mad at me, please. <laughs> this is a prayer of salvation. Many of you have said this prayer in your life. Others of you never have. Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to say yes to Christ? You know, if I were to say, hey, I want you to come to a Christmas party. If I was gonna send you a letter, at the bottom I might have written, please RSVP, because I wanna know if you're coming. I wanna know if you accept my invitation. Jesus wants to know if you're coming, if you accept his invitation. I might even put instructions on the invitation so you can find my house, because you don't know how to get there. And if you don't know how to get there, you don't need to talk to your uncle, your aunt, your friend, some guy at the bar, don't ask their opinion. They don't know how to get there. You need to talk to somebody who lives there, who knows how to get you there. There's a million and one people in the world right now who'll tell you what they think about getting to heaven. But there's only one who can tell you who lives there. And that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the light. Nobody comes to the father except by me. Jesus says, there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is the name Jesus Christ. So don't care about what all these other people say. You need to know what he says. And he says, you must be born again. And you can be born again by saying yes to him. Let's all say this prayer, I'll lead you. And then I'm praying that many of you who are saying it for the first time will say yes to him. Jesus, I'm not perfect, for I have sinned. I believe in you. Save me, change me, forgive me. I give you my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.